Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. So I'm very happy to be joined on this episode of Victor's Children by my old comrade, David McNally, the editor-in-chief uh, of Spectre, a U.S.-based Marxist journal, uh, currently living in Houston. Hi, David. Hello, David. So nice to see you and hear you. It's great. And uh, we're going to talk today about a topic that, you know, for some people raises their eyebrows or uh, in some cases makes them want to run, uh, this question of dialectics. What are they and do socialists need them? So People who are becoming socialists today are often learning about these ideas for the first time on YouTube and going into other online platforms. And they, offer, they often encounter the idea that Marxism involves a philosophy called dialectical materialism that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels supposedly developed by building on the German philosopher Hegel. Meanwhile, in universities, social science and humanities departments, we often come across the idea that dialectics uh, it's just antiquated thinking, a relic of the past, uh, often because dialectics are seen as unscientific, some kind of mystical hangover, in contrast to contemporary social science with its methodological individualist ideas about rational human actors as a starting point for understanding society. Or from another perspective, dialectics get rejected because they're seen as just another example of European Enlightenment thought which wrongly treats the thinking of a few more or less racist and sexist white men in particular times and places as if those ideas were universally true. So that's a context for talking about dialectics today. And I'd like to, to dig into this um, by, David, asking you the, the question, what is dialectical thinking in the broadest sense of that term? It might be useful to start with a contrast. Because going back to where you were just a moment ago, David, I think it's fair to say that the dominant scientific worldview, and by that I'm using scientific in quotes, that the worldview that dominates the natural sciences and the human sciences in the West since the 17th century consists of what we might call a kind of atomic or atomistic approach. What I mean by that is it imagines the physical and social worlds as consisting of independent, discrete atomic bits. These can be little bits of matter that you call atoms, molecules, what have you, or it can be social bits called individuals. So it begins this so-called scientific worldview it begins with the smallest possible part. And it imagines that we understand reality by understanding these smallest parts, and then we essentially add them together. It's an approach which is sometimes called aggregation. You just keep aggregating more and more of them, bits of matter or bits of humans together and you get larger units. You get the whole natural world, you get the whole social order, and so on. In the social sciences, this is, as you've already suggested, a kind of methodological individualism. The method is to begin with the individual. So that's the dominant worldview, as I say, since the 17th century in the West that we associate with philosophy and the natural sciences in particular. Dialectics is at root a thoroughgoing challenge to this atomistic approach. It begins holistically. It insists that if you want to understand living systems, you need to look at the whole of which they are a part. If we take an elementary biological example, 
you can see what I mean. It might be very convenient to someone doing anatomy to think that they could dissect the lungs or dissect the heart and understand these organs. But any kind of holistic approach is going to win out because it's immediately going to grasp that you can't understand what the lungs do without understanding how the heart provides the lungs with oxygen. And so it's this insistence on the interconnectedness of parts and that parts cannot be understood outside that they make up, that they compose. And this is true for individuals in, the so in social life as much as it is of parts of a, say, human body. So that individuals can't be figured out if we try to study them on their own without any idea of the complex of social relationships out of which those individuals come, their families of origin, their social classes, their gender and racial identities, the ways in which they occupy certain positions within a division of labor within capitalist society and the class relations built upon all of that. So that's the first thing about dialectics is it's holistic in nature. Related to this is that it, it doesn't deny that there are parts of an organic system. You are a discrete individual, just like every one of our listeners is. But we, all of these parts are internally connected rather than simply externally connected. And let me just pause on that point for a moment. If you take a really good example of an atomistic thinker like Isaac Newton, Newton was convinced that the world consisted of atomic bits. And then he had the problem of how they interact. And he used the example of billiard balls. You have a bunch of balls on a table. You push one, it hits another, and it deflects it in some direction. This is a set of external connections. Pre-existing billiard balls make contact externally, and this changes their movement in some way, their location in space for instance. So Newton was convinced that external relations dominated the interactions among bits. But if we go back to our idea of the heart and the lungs, it's clear that they're internally connected. That is to say, neither is really understandable without the other. And this is the second key element of dialectics. And in addition to being holistic, it insists that the parts of an organic system are internally connected. They actually constitute one another. You are constituted by all the people who have been part of your life and all of the social relationships that you have developed through historically, and as is every other individual. The final key element of dialectics is that it insists that organic systems are not static. They are living, developing, changing, and transforming all the time. In other words, organic systems are in motion. And as a result, knowledge itself must be dynamic. Knowledge must develop ways of apprehending and comprehending phenomena in the world that are equal to the very dynamism of things themselves. So you can't just go around creating static classifications as many social sciences love to do. Let's just classify things. You have to actually understand the ways in which things, phenomena, events are constantly transforming and have a knowledge which is at its core dynamic. So holism, internal relations among bits or parts, and the dynamic transformational quality of things. Those are really the key elements of what any dialectical approach consists of. 
think that's that's great. It's a very helpful way of thinking about it. Let's talk about Hegel for a minute, um, since sometimes people who are trying to learn about some of these things will encounter uh, these little summaries of Hegel's thought in terms of some various maxims and, and principles. Um, could you just say something in general about, about the thought of this German philosopher Hegel and the role of dialectics in his thinking? Yes, and because he was a philosopher, Hegel, like every philosopher, was preoccupied with the problem of truth. What is truth? How do we know if a philosophical statement is true? How do we know if a statement in ordinary life is true? But what is really exciting in many ways about Hegel is that he insists that there's no such thing as a static truth statement. He says to us from the start, it's silly to say my philosophy is true and all previous philosophy was false. Well, why is that silly? Because actually philosophers tend to very often engage like that, claiming that they've got a truthful system of thought and everybody prior to them did not. And Hegel says, where did my thought come from? My thought exists because generations, centuries, even millennia of human beings have struggled to understand themselves and their world. And as somebody trained in philosophy, I've been initiated to what Plato said, for instance, to what Aristotle wrote. I've been initiated into systems of thought that go back a few thousand years. And so to say I've got the truth and everyone else is wrong is to deny the whole process by which I came to certain philosophical conclusions. And Hegel says it is not the conclusions that are the key. It is the process of knowing. Knowing is also dynamic and developmental. And as a result, all knowledge carries with it residues of earlier thought that have been transcended and overcome, but with which you couldn't have gotten to where you are. And so they had some truth to them, even if you've gone beyond them, because they were building blocks. They were steps on a ladder in the development of knowledge. So what is really radical about Hegel is he is his statement that knowledge itself is in a state of becoming. And it is the process of becoming that is truthful. Truth lies in the process, not in the fixed conclusion at the end. It's, a, as I said, a very, very different way of thinking about what truth is. Hegel uses the uh, metaphor at one point. He says, truth is not a minted coin that I can put in my pocket. It's not just a lifeless thing. Truth is always developing, always evolving. As a result, it's uh, thinking is always unfinished. There's an inherent incompleteness to the project of human truth-making, of human understanding uh, of the world. The other really key thing that he says in all of this is that this becoming of truth this becoming of knowledge happens through contradictions. In other words, regularly in the history of philosophy, thinking polarizes between two seemingly utterly opposite systems of understanding the world. The most common example is extreme idealism and extreme materialism. In extreme idealism, knowledge is only what's in my head, and it has nothing to do with the external world. Knowledge is purely subjective. In extreme idealism, materialism, thinking doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The truth resides in the things themselves. And that's a contradiction between two different systems. Hegel's argument is that these contradictions bedevil us and force us to push beyond them, to 
bring the two systems into collision in such a way that a higher, more comprehensive way of thinking about the world develops. And so the process of becoming isn't straightforward. It's not just an easy flow. There are actually great struggles between different philosophical schools, different philosophers, different scientific approaches, and these contradictory positions clash and require some kind of resolution. That's what drives forward the, the process of thought. The final really significant thing, and this will surprise some people who've heard about Hegel, is that Hegel is deeply a realist. By that I mean he says what happens in thought corresponds to the very structure of reality. Thought moves in this way, dynamically and through contradictions, because the world is dynamic and contradictory in character. These events of, that happen in thought are simply for Hegel the highest expression, that's his idealism, is that what happens at the level of thought is the highest realm in which the contradictory dynamics of all life are worked out. But nevertheless, the whole of human and natural reality is dynamic and driven by struggle and contradiction. So that's really the essence of Hegel's approach. And dialectics is this process of becoming which create new problems. So that is, you know, Hegel writing in Germany in the early 1800s. Then we get Karl Marx and Marx's relationship to Hegel, which, of course, some people have written enormous <laughs> amounts of uh, writing on. But, um, you know, in brief, can you tell listeners a little bit about what you think Marx took from Hegel and what would we say would be the role of dialectical thinking in what I would say is a profound, unfinished and open revolutionary theory of society that Marx developed? So Marx is definitely inheriting something really important from Hegel. But his set of concerns, his preoccupations are different. And this does transform what dialectics means in Marx's hands. For Hegel, as I was saying, it's the problem of truthfulness and philosophical understanding that drives his dialectical process. Marx's preoccupation is with history and society and most specifically with the question of how modern society can be consciously and radically changed. And what he very quickly comes to is the understanding that society, like human thinking, is in a constant process of becoming, but it's its process of becoming which is also full of contradictions and conflict that I'll come back to in a moment. The society's process of becoming isn't driven by different philosophical approaches. What drives societal becoming, social development and transformation, is the complex of practices, human practical activity, through which people produce and reproduce human life. This, for Marx, is what allows him to understand society as also dynamic and developmental, and crucially, for his purposes, as changeable, as changeable by conscious human collective action. And what he says to us is, that once we find ourselves in class societies, societies divided into social classes, at least one of which, through its economic and political power, dominates and exploits a laboring class or laboring classes, once a society has that class division between exploiters and exploited, dominators 
and dominated. Then its essential dynamic moves through the social contradictions between classes, what Marx calls class struggle. And so when people say that for Marx, class struggle is the motor of history, what they're getting at is it's no longer the con contradiction between philosophical systems that preoccupies Marx. It's not that he was disinterested in that. It's that at the foundation of the conflicts within a society are these class antagonisms between exploiters and exploited. And that's where the great emphasis on class struggle comes from. With capitalism, he believes that because it is such a universalizing system, it becomes possible for the first time in human history to actually have a project of world transformation, of the remaking of world history. So it's class struggle, not say the moral choices of individuals, which are ultimately decisive. And of course it also follows for Marx that if humans make history in an ever evolving open-ended process, then history is always incomplete. It never comes to a resting point. Human beings are historical by nature. They create cultures, social relations, new technologies, new art, new ways of being in the world, most broadly defined new relations between humans and nature, and so on. And therefore, while knowledge is dialectical as well, it's always incomplete. It's always unfinished. It's always evolving because if knowledge is historical and history never ends, then knowledge is always in a state of becoming. So that Mark shares with Hegel. However, he's departing very, very significantly because he's saying that whereas Hegel saw contradictions in thinking as ultimately the key to how human life evolves and develops, Marx is saying it's contradictions embedded in the human practices by which we produce and reproduce social life. And that in any class society, this means class contradictions. So the dynamism is there. The holism is there. The emphasis on becoming is there. But Marx's so-called historical materialism is that is anchored in this overriding preoccupation on how people labor, how they produce the practical activities that create and recreate society rather than an overriding focus on thought and philosophy. Now, Marx had an intellectual collaborator. Uh, you know, he worked very closely for many years, Frederick Engels, uh, who, who also wrote about issues of dialectics. Um, and so could you venture a thought or two about whether you think Engels' thinking on these issues was, this, was the same as Marx's or different? Because there's certainly debate about that among interpreters. Yes. And I think we need to begin this line of conversation by acknowledging that Marx and Engels never imagined that as much as they were collaborators, that somehow this required them to create a new doctrine, never mind a dogma, in which they had no disagreements, in which they aspired for complete uniformity of thinking. It just wasn't the nature either of their friendship, which was lifelong, or the kind of intellectual collaboration they did. They saw their intellect grounded in some fundamental principles, absolutely. Like the idea that socialism required the collective self-emancipation of the working class. This was a political agreement that they had 
throughout their lives, going back to when they were both in their 20s. But they differed on all kinds of questions that even a cursory reading of their correspondence indicates. And so the idea that we need to somehow treat them as one mind and one voice is, is really unhelpful. The next thing I would say is that Engels always acknowledged that Marx was the greater thinker. In his speech at Marx's graveside, he says, look, a lot of us of this generation were talented, but Marx was a genius. And he didn't mean genius in some abstract way. He meant this guy simply thought more deeply, rigorously, creatively, and comprehensively than the rest of us. And so if we find some gaps and differences between Engels and Marx at times, and I believe we do, and I'll come to dialectics on this in a moment, this shouldn't shock us or surprise us or worry us. So what I would say is this, that most of the time, Engels thinking is moving in a pretty congenial path with Marx's. But from time to time, Engels had a tendency to get what I'll call schematic. And schematic thinking wants to classify the way in which I was saying earlier, dialectics often resist classifying and pigeonholing everything. And so, for instance, in his really fertile and provocative dialectics of nature, which I by no means dismiss as a text, there's a lot going on in Engels' book, Dialectics of Nature, which really deserves revisiting and rereading. But at one particular point, he suggests that all dialectic conforms to three different laws of dialectics. And then he enumerates what he thinks these laws are. Now, that certainly is something Marx never did. And I don't think it's helpful to any kind of dialectical process to try to enumerate the finite number of laws of dialectics that will define all dialectical processes. Among other things, how do we know? If knowledge is unfinished, how do we know what all the processes of transformation in the cosmos will look like? And the idea that we can enumerate three principles to which they can all be reduced is just, it produces a kind of narrow, crude, and often reductionist thinking that I don't think Marx exemplifies, particularly in his greatest writings. And so one of the things that happens historically is that later attempts to effectively vulgarize Marx's thinking often seized on some of these unfortunate formulations and angles, like these three laws of dialectics. And they became, unfortunately, a kind of hostage to fortune. Everything which was going to sap the life out of dialectical thinking was often defended by treating Engels' three laws of dialectics as some kind of orthodoxy to which all dialectical and materialist thinking had to conform. That's death for genuine dialectics. It means that we are reverting to a closed system of knowledge rather than an open, dynamic, and developmental system. So while I think often a lot of Engels' texts really deserve to be revisited today, formulations, which later gets seized upon, made even more crude than Engels intended. And as a result, when we go back to those texts today, we need to be circumspect and sometimes outrightly critical, as I am, of what Engels says about these so-called three laws of dialectics. That's, again, very helpful. And it uh, maybe bridges us to talking about so-called, in quotation marks, dialectical materialism. Um, so, contrary to what sometimes people might have heard or have read, Marx and Engels never actually <laughs> described their thought as 
dialectical materialism. Uh, that's something that comes later and is projected back onto them. So I, I've seen it argued that this term was first used by another German socialist of their time named Joseph Dietzkin. It certainly was used by Karl Kautsky and uh, Georgi Plakhanov, who were respectively German and Russian socialists, who in the very late 19th century did a lot to build a theory which was called Marxism, of course, a term that Marx and Engels never used. Uh, and I would argue what they did was they took some of the ideas of Marx and Engels and they interpreted those ideas through and supplemented them with ideas that they got from their own intellectual environment, certainly uh, Darwin and other earlier materialist thinkers um, from before Marx uh, were influential there. And so then the writings of people like Kautsky and Blakhanov helped construct what some people call second international Marxism, which is a body of thinking named after the socialist international, or the so-called second international. Um, the first international was the International Working Men's Association that Marx was involved with. Uh, and then this was later followed by the second or socialist international. Um, and it was in those writings of the second international, this idea of dialectical materialism became popularized. And then later, after the Russian Revolution, you had the formation of the Communist International, also known as the Comintern or the Third International, which was formed by the Bolsheviks and other revolutionary socialists uh, who were supporting the Russian Revolution. And that movement broke politically from the Second International, but it arguably didn't break from Second International Marxism at the level of philosophy, with some very important exceptions, like uh, Georgi Lukács in Hungary and Karl Korsch in Germany whose thought was treated as heretical by many of the top Comintern leaders. And this is an aside, I'll throw in that Lenin had written philosophical notebooks from just after the beginning of the First World War, which shows some evidence of a shift in his own thinking, but they weren't actually published until after his, own, after his death and they weren't widely known. And then you have in the 1920s, the rulers of the USSR grouped around Joseph Stalin, subordinating the Communist International, the Comintern to their control. And then once they were in control or as part of that process and after they propounded a version of theory that they called dialectical materialism, which became incredibly influential around the world because it was the state ideology of the USSR is the official ideology of the world communist movement. Uh, Stalin himself wrote about it in the late 1930s. Uh, and then a version of this became the official ideology of the Chinese state. It's still taught in schools uh, to the great disinterest of many students in, in contemporary China. Uh, and so this is what dialectical materialism comes to be for most people around the world who come into contact with it. Um, and this was widely seen as what Marxist philosophy was, both by its supporters and by most of the people who rejected it. So, uh, of course, feel free to, you know, if you have any disagreements with that summary that I've tried to, to offer, feel free to just to throw, throw it in. But um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about what this dialectical materialism was that comes down to us through this history and how it compares and contrasts with the thought of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Yes, and while you've already indicated, David, this is a, a, a long story with a lot of different avenues, it nevertheless shows certain continuities in direction. So let's start with the so-called second or socialist international and the way in which there was essentially a, an attempt to conflate Marx's thinking with Darwin's. This is very important because what it does is it sets a certain route that then gets deepened over time. Darwin, as we know, had enumerated a series of basic laws of natural evolution. And there's no question this was a radical, sometimes revolutionary contribution on the origin of species in particular. But remember Marx's preoccupation as I said earlier, was with human social life and its history. Marx's dialectics is fundamentally a human historical dialectics. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have a bearing on the natural world because humans are part of nature. But it's the historicity 
of human life, which Marx is really focused on. If, on the other hand, you try to rewrite Marx as a theorist who developed natural laws which dictate the evolution of human societies, that's not what Marx was doing. This is a fundamental departure because what you're doing is naturalizing social processes. You're essentially saying that there is nothing unique or distinctive about the transformations that human society go through from basic organic and biological processes of life. So you're eliminating human culture. You're eliminating human social organization. You're eliminating conscious human action as being central. And as a result, it's not incorrect when people say that this approach tended towards an evolutionary socialism rather than a revolutionary socialism. It tended to treat social development as a product of natural laws that were working themselves out behind people's backs. And as a result, it also moved towards a historical inevitabilism. Socialism is inevitable because it is the product of these natural laws of human history that are as immutable as natural selection, say. And so, as Rosa Luxemburg, the great theorist of revolutionary socialism and the mass strike in the early 20th century, Rosa Luxemburg, who came out of the Polish socialist movement, joined the German movement in the 1890s uh, and became the leader of the left wing of the German socialist movement. As Rosa Luxemburg would point out over and over again, this is a kind of fatalism. It assumes that human history is out of our hands. It will fatalistically evolve. And apparently, socialism is inevitable. And so, why worry about organizing conscious human intervention into the historical process? So this is why we often call this approach, which, as I say, naturalizes Marx's conception of history by acting as if there are laws of history, which are just an outgrowth of the laws of nature. It eliminates human agency. It eliminates conscious human action. It creates this inevitabilism and fatalism, which may be optimistic. The victory of socialism is inevitable. But what we know is that historically it disarmed working class movements. That when great social crises came, the major proponents of this so-called dialectical materialism were opposed to revolutionary action on the part of the working class. And so it was a demobilizing, de-revolutionizing kind of worldview because precisely it lost the dialectic of human practice, human action, human conscious struggle in transforming the historical process. The other thing which it tended to do, and this becomes very severe during the Stalin period with the communist parties from the Stalin period on, Stalin really consolidates his hold over the world communist movement from 1928 onwards. For them, dialectical materialism becomes the science. There's only one science of anything. Materialism. And dialectical materialism is the science of nature, it's the science of society, it's the science of history. And 
they become so obsessed with the idea that they have true scientific knowledge as a result of this botch called dialectical materialism, that it very quickly becomes an elitist practice because you now need not an emphasis on human action to change the world in which the masses have the capacity to transform their society and to rewrite history. Instead, everything relies upon your science. And so you need a series of experts who understand this science called dialectical materialism, and you produce increasingly turgid, dry, doctrinaire, boring textbooks full of it. And man, are they dry, boring, and turgid, these textbooks from Russia or China or what have you during this period. And then, of course, you need a series of popes you need a series of adjudicators of what is heresy and what is orthodoxy. And this, of course, becomes the leadership of so-called adjudicate. When someone's theory or practice is a heresy and they are to be expelled, jailed, whatever. In other words, they claim to possess true and final knowledge. And this is so non-dialectical. This is so non-historical. And it loses sight of Marx and Engels' great conviction that the masses of people have to create socialism for themselves. And in doing that, they will expand all of the horizons of human knowledge, culture, and social organization. This something Rosa Luxemburg says over and over again. When we get to the time of the Russian Revolution, as you've already noted, the Russian Revolution breaks politically with this approach. The Russian Revolution asserts human agency it says the masses must make the revolution. They must create their own democratic workers' councils and so on. So the great thing about the Russian Revolution of 1917 is that it restores conscious human action to the center of a revolutionary socialist or Marxist politics. But all of these leaders of the Russian revolutionary movement had come up through the dialectical materialist orthodoxy. They had absorbed it as well. And it is absolutely true that Lenin, just before the Russian Revolution, goes through an intellectual crisis and realizes, I better read Hegel. I better study dialectics because something has gone fatally wrong with the World Socialist Movement, the majority of whose parties have now supported the First World War in complete opposition to what the World Socialist Movement is supposed to stand for. So Lenin turns to Hegel and dialectics, but a revolution intervenes. He doesn't publish these notebooks. And while you can see traces of this thinking in some of his later writing, he becomes preoccupied with the overthrowing of the Tsarist state, the establishment of Soviet power, and so on in Russia. And as a result, the battle is much more fought out in other socialist movements. And you've mentioned two key figures, I'll add a third, but George Lukács inside the Hungarian Communist Party in his book, History and Class Consciousness. Think about that, history and class consciousness. It takes conscious class action by the working class to remake history. So Lukács is part of the rediscovery of dialectical thinking. Karl Korsch, working in the German context in his book, Marxism and Philosophy. And another key figure I would add, Antonio Gramsci in the Italian movement. And this is something that really runs through all of Gramsci's later prison notebooks as well. 
is the attempt to restore dialectics to the center of revolutionary socialist theory and practice. They all are trying to break with this crude, vulgar, evolutionist approach. And that's why today, if somebody were to say to me, well, after all the travesties of so-called dialectical materialism, is there anything left? I would say, well, yes, in addition to Marx, there was the great attempt in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution to recover dialectical thinking and action for the revolutionary left. And so therefore the, the works of people like Lukash and Korsh and Gramsci in this period are indispensable. As I would say, the political writings of Rosa Luxemburg are, even if she didn't get the opportunity to revisit some of the philosophical themes. And so in, in this sense, it's really, I would say that Marxist has really been split between those who want to hold to this incredibly doctrinaire, and as I said earlier, static and turgid so-called dialectical materialism, and those elements which revisited Hegel in order to restore the dialectics of conscious human historical action. And those writings remain indispensable, I think, to anybody really interested in progress for the left today. That's great. And yes, I certainly agree with you about Gramsci there. Um, so if we circle back to, to Marx uh, and then consider the kind of accusations that get thrown up against dialectical thinking today, let's take, first of all, the, the charge that we should reject dialectics and reject Marx's thinking um, because it's unscientific within the conception of science that you get in mainstream social science. You know, if you were going to summarize your response to that, uh, that charge of not being scientific, what would you say? Well, I would start by saying that what is truly unscientific is the static, atomistic, pigeonholing, classificatory kind of social science. And it's unscientific because reality, natural and social historical, is None of those things. It is not static. It's dynamic and self-transforming. It's not atomistic. It's organic and holistic in character. And so, interestingly, there is an assumption that mechanistic 17th century science is the standard of what is scientific today. And I say it's an irony because it's been blown apart by the natural sciences themselves. I'll take just one example. In the study of biology, increasingly biologists have moved towards what's often called complexity theory to explain evolution. Now what they do with complexity theory is they say, look, as you get more complex life forms, it's true you see residues of certain kinds of natural laws that governed evolution, say, at the purely multi-molecular level, when you had a few molecules interacting with one another. But the ways in which cannot be mapped onto what complex organisms like humans or dolphins or elephants consist of. And the more complex the living organism, the more there are new properties and new processes that must be understood. And so complexity theory talks about emergent properties as you get the dynamic movement towards greater complexity. There are new and emergent properties which cannot be reduced to the previous set of properties. Well, this is another way of saying that our knowledge must be holistic and dynamic. 
It can't be atomistic and it can't be reductionist. And so we're seeing in biology, and I'm just taking that as one example, a move towards a much more dialectical approach. And interestingly, the writings of some of the most important Marxist biologists like Richard Lewontin, who co-authored The Dialectical Biologist, or Stephen Jay Gould, have had a kind of renaissance in recent years among biologists. I would also add, I think we may be getting to this later, that this makes a lot of sense from an eco-socialist standpoint to have this organic and developmental approach. So I would argue that the irony is the criticism of dialectics for being unscientific, in fact, comes from a pseudoscientific standpoint, which is reductionist and static and atomistic in character. Yes, and I think we could also then link that uh, approach to the kind of uh, technical purposes that it's harnessed to. That is, you know, it's often social sciences in the service of the state or corporations or some state-sponsored agencies um, concerned with various forms of measurement and manipulation for the managing of the existing social order. Um, that there's kind of a material base to that. So that's just a, a thought that crossed my mind. Um, but then there's a charge against dialectics from a totally different direction that I think we also need to discuss um, and maybe take more seriously. Um, and that is that the charge to dialectics should be rejected because it's part of the European Enlightenment and we should discard that tradition entirely because that tradition falsely claims to have universal truths uh, when in fact it's, you know, it doesn't offer any, anything like that. It's a particular, you know, class, gender, racial uh, project. So. I think this deserves digging into as well. Yes, and here I want to come back to something we were talking about earlier with Hegel about how we overcome the inadequacies and the falsities that exist within certain fields of knowledge without relinquishing their valid insights. There is a dialectic of enlightenment, and that means there's a struggle between contradictory tendencies and impulses within the enlightenment. The enlightenment is not one thing, and that's really crucial to this whole dialectical approach. If somebody says to me that there were enlightenment philosophers who were deeply racist and patriarchal, I would totally agree. I have no problem agreeing with that. That is 100%. Correct. And so on the field of enlightenment knowledge, we want to be engaged in a struggle against all of the contradictions embedded in those patriarchal or racist elements of it. But the enlightenment is also a field of emancipatory and liberatory tendencies. So that, for instance, when we talk about the Enlightenment, we need also to talk about Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the revolution in Haiti that broke out in 1791, that resulted in the first independent black republic in the world and the first nation state in the world to abolish slavery. If you read Toussaint Louverture's speeches, they are bathed in Enlightenment terminology liberty, freedom, equality, self-determination, all of these basic enlightenment values. But now they have been transformed in their meaning because they are values that are weapons in a struggle against colonialism and slavery. And so when we talk about the Enlightenment, are we talking about the so-called Enlightenment of Napoleon Bonaparte, who eventually kills Toussaint Louverture in a French prison, or are we talking about the Enlightenment of Toussaint Louverture, the radical abolitionist anti-colonial Enlightenment? And you see this running through lots of subsequent and very, very important work the great anti-colonial thinker and activist, Frantz Fanon, 
for instance, in the final chapter of his testament, The Wretched of the Earth, calls for a new humanism. But he says to us, this is not the old European humanism. However, it takes over everything worth salvaging within the older European humanism and then blows it up, then transcends it, then overcomes it. And so the notion of the new humanism is something that inherits and destroys liberty and self-determination as values. It refuses to relinquish the project of human equality, but then it destroys the imperialist, colonialist, racist, patriarchal, capitalist dimensions of Enlightenment thinking. You get something very similar in the recent book by the very, very important African philosopher and social theorist, Atu Sekiyotu. And the main, the primary title of the book is Left Universalism. And then he goes on to talk about left universalism from an Afrocentric standpoint. But with left universalism, what he's saying to us is, we need to reclaim a universalism of the left because the lack of a universalist project has been disastrous for post-colonial Africa. We need all of those values of universal emancipation, but they have to be reworked from an Afrocentric standpoint, i.e. one that speaks to the lived social and historical realities of Africa. But Atu Sekiotu is insistent that you don't do this by relinquishing the commitment, by reclaiming it from its false friends. You essentially move universalism onto a higher plane, one that's anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, and as he's very clear about, anti-capitalist in nature. So... I think the key thing here is to understand that dialectical thinking also enables us to think through what it means to both preserve the best and blow up the worst within a set of values or a philosophical approach or a worldview. And that, of course, is a very Hegelian thing, to explode the contradictions in a way that moves us forward. And I think that's how we have to look at Enlightenment, I, you know, ironically, genuine dialectics is a tool in recapturing that new humanism of Fanon or that left universalism that Atu Sekiyotu advocates. All right. So I'm going to then move to, I think, what will be our last uh, topic. Um, and, you know, you've, you've been, I think, implying all the way along that we need dialectical thinking today. But I want to focus in on this on this question in terms of socialists today and the question of, of dialectics, because we certainly need theory to guide our actions, to guide struggles whose arise and is ultimately breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. So, you know, in what sense does the kind of theory that we need need to be dialectical? And can you talk a little bit about how dialectical thinking can help us act in more effective ways in the here and now, but with that eco-socialist horizon? Yes. So I'll speak to this at two different levels. First, the project of eco-socialism. Fundamentally, what we're fighting against as eco-socialists is the instrumentalization of nature that is inherent in capitalism. And when you instrumentalize nature, You treat it as a set of dead things waiting for human manipulation. In other words, you don't see humans and nature as internally connected and inseparable. You don't see humans and nature as comprising an organic system, a living organic system. Capitalism, because it seeks to commodify and commercialize everything, 
needs to treat all of the natural world and environment as a set of dead things waiting to be appropriated. And so dialectical thinking, which emphasizes our internal relations as humans with nature, like whole, part of a complex organic system, opens the door to a kind of philosophical or theoretical approach, which I would argue is essential to any viable eco-socialism because it enables us both to identify what's wrong with how capitalism instrumentalizes nature and the natural environment, but it also allows us to show how the very philosophical foundations, the intellectual foundations of this worldview are flawed and faulty. To give a second example of how it sort of strategically helps us, as you mentioned at the beginning, David, I'm living and working in Houston, Texas. I'm on the US political scene. And one of the things that is frequently stymieing the US left is a static counterposition between race struggle and class struggle. There are so-called class reductionists, I don't really like how that term sometimes used, who believe that all that matters is the economic struggle of the working class against exploitation and that addressing gender inequality and oppression or racial inequality and oppression. Now, of course, the mirror image of that is a liberal anti-racism that wants to challenge racial oppression, but without challenging capitalism. And as a result, it ends up in the cul-de-sac of diversity training programs and that sort of thing, without ever addressing the deep structures of racism with respect to housing, healthcare, employment, and so on. And so the dialectical approach allows us to say, these are not two separate atomistic relations. These are internally connected, these relations of race and class today. Some people have tried to capture this with the concept of racial capitalism. But the idea that race and class are internally connected then allows us to say, if this is so, then every class struggle has to be anti-racist in inspiration and objectives. And that every anti-racist struggle must have its anti-capitalist dimension. And so it breaks through the deadening polarization between so-called race-based and so-called class-based politics by dialecticizing the relationship between race and class and treating them as part of one unified force field of relations of domination in our society. So I really want to end by saying that dialectics is too precious an asset for the left today to squander or to allow the old vulgar distortions of dialectical materialism, in quotes, to deprive us of the rich resources of genuinely dynamic, open-ended historical thinking and what that can bring. Thank you very much, David. This was great. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.